All right, hopefully the voice holds out for the morning. I think I might be allergic to the Christmas tree or Christmas or something. I don't know what's going on, but we have celebrated Advent now for four weeks and in the church calendar then as you finish up Advent, you have 12 days of Christmas. And so this is the one Sunday that falls in to those 12 days of Christmas. So one more week here in Isaiah, and then we'll return back to the Gospel of Mark um, in the new year and continue with the series there. We're going to look at Isaiah 35. I'm going to do four things this morning. One, just give you a brief context for Isaiah 35. And then an overview of it as we see really five scenes that Isaiah paints for us, or five pictures that he presents to us, all picturing our redemption or picturing salvation. And after that, kind of see three epics of its fulfillment, three ways, um, epics in which this prophecy is fulfilled. And then finally, draw out from it a theme um, that runs through Isaiah 35, runs through Isaiah, really all of Scripture, and certainly in Christmas. So it sounds like a lot, but I think we'll move through it rather quickly. The context, Isaiah, as we've seen at this point, is full of warnings both to God's people of judgment coming for their disobedience and warnings to the nations which have come and overwhelmed God's people. Through the middle of Isaiah, he strings together a series of woes, W-O-E, woes. And and they are warnings or judgments that are coming. And they climax in Isaiah 34, the chapter right before us, climaxes is kind of lands on the nation of Edom and God promises judgment on Edom Edom is a a long time adversary to Israel all the way back in numbers you see them as um, the Lord as they will not let the people pass through their land and judgment is promised all the way back in numbers and and that has grown and so Edom as this adversary to the Lord But we see quickly in Isaiah 34 that Edom really stands as a representation to the whole world. All nations, the world, all of those who would stand as adversaries to God and to his work, to God and to his people, those who would seek their own glory and not the glory of God. Judgment is coming. And so a picture is painted of a once, the picture we've seen in Isaiah, a once sort of powerful people of, of a forest full of trees that have been hacked down to the stump and what's left is a barren wilderness. This is the judgment that is coming. And so when we come to Isaiah 35 and you just heard it read, there is a great uh, contrast that we see from a barren wasteland to this beautiful land, this great transformation Really, it is going to be an experience, an expression of our redemption and our salvation that we will see. It's it's interesting, when you look at Scripture, the Lord teaches us in many ways in Scripture. So you often have doctrinal statements, propositional statements that are really important. 
You go somewhere like Romans or Ephesians and you see these logical arguments, these statements that are laid out that describe our redemption and our salvation. And, and then we rehearse them and quote them together as, as churchmen labor over the word and, and come up with, with creeds and catechisms that would, would be a summary of it to protect us from error. Those are incredibly important, but also he gives us the story of salvation in poetry, in prose, in longer form narratives, in pictures. And what it does is it gives us kind of a fuller, richer, more complete understanding of our salvation, of our redemption, to have both of these work together. And it moves us, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and our souls to see this beautiful picture of redemption unfold. And that's exactly what Isaiah is going to do for us here. So that's our context. The scenes of Isaiah. There's really five scenes that Isaiah is going to pick for us. And so if you can, almost picture it as if it's up here on the, the screen. And you're seeing sort of these, these scenes unfold on the screens this morning. So the first one, we, we start in a desert. We are in a desert. Israel knows all about the desert and the wilderness. You immediately think of their 40 years of, of wandering in the desert, them being exiled away from home. But as you look at the desert, there is a great transformation that takes place from barrenness and dryness comes forth this new beautiful scene. And for a moment, the land itself is personified as it shouts forward in joy and gladness. And the desert bursts into blossom, into a beautiful garden, into a beautiful land. And for a moment, Isaiah steps out of the imagery and just tells us straightforward that what we are seeing is not just beautiful land, but we are seeing the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord shining forth in a renewed creation. And we get this first idea of redemption, of God's renewal of all creation, of, of taking a, a cursed, barren land and bringing forth beauty and joy from it. We move to our next scene in this passage. Now we see on the screen, as you will, a, a, a group of weak and scared and panicked people, probably soldiers. And they stand there as losing all morale, unable to, to move, to put anything into action. Their, their arms hang listless. They quake at the knees. They, they don't have the fortitude to go forward. They don't have a plan. Their hearts have failed them. They are full of fear. But again, as we look at the screen, then a great transformation takes place. And as the words of encouragement come from the prophet, they are, they are moved with courage. They are moved to recover their morale. And we see not from within, but from without, they are strengthened and they are made ready. Why? Because God is coming. And he is coming not just with judgment, but he is coming with salvation. He is coming with vengeance to deliver them and overcome their enemies. And again, we see this picture of salvation, of God coming 
to deliver us, coming with grace, coming with judgment. All right, we move on to scene three. Now you see a group of people with great physical disabilities. They're blind, they, they, they cannot see, they grope around. Deaf, cannot hear the word of the Lord. Some are lame, they cannot walk, they cannot move forward. Some are dumb or mute, they cannot communicate. And you have this picture of these great physical disabilities. From it, of course, we see in scripture that often we we move to the spiritual realm and a picture of, of us spiritually blind and deaf and mute lame, unable to follow God's path, move forward after him. It seems to be a picture of us born in sin, under the curse, not worshiping God as we should. But even as you look and you you take in this tragedy and this scene before your eyes, you hear a triumphant prophecy. And once again, there is a great transformation as God restores all of the faculties. He brings physical, he brings spiritual healing. God sets all things whole as they should be. And again, you behold the salvation of the Lord. Scene four, we're back in the desert now. Only the focus now is not on the blossoming of the desert, but but what brings that blossom about? It is the water that gushes forward in the wilderness. It gives life. It brings refreshment. We can think back in redemptive history. We see God has done this for his people as they wandered in the wilderness. He, he has brought forth the water when they need it. He, he has refreshed them. He, he's brought forth the water that gives them life. And Jesus takes that imagery, doesn't he, in his ministry. And he brings forth living water. Water that will satisfy. Water that will eternally restore and refresh And it doesn't just stop there, but it becomes mercy and grace as the rivers of water flowing out to the ends of the nations as the gospel goes forward into the wilderness. The gospel goes forward to all people. And again, a picture of salvation, of God bringing what we most need, of God giving that life-giving, refreshing, transforming water. Scene five. Back in the desert one more time. This time the scene focuses on the dangers that come in the wilderness. The dangers that come to exiles and pilgrims in their wanderings and their their crossing of a a dust storm, a sandstorm that would rise up and quickly blind the people, leave no indication, no marking what direction you're going, you're lost the lions, the animals, the, those dangers that would be lurking. And here it says that God provides a highway. He raises it up, he paves it, he makes the way clear. He puts you on it, he protects you while you're on it. He gets rid of all obstacles and he brings you to Zion on this paved road that he raises up for you. 
Again, a picture of our redemption, of God's work. So you have these five scenes that, that paint for us, not so much in, in a doctrinal statement, but in these beautiful pictures of our redemption, of what God is going to do to renew and restore his creation, to save his people. So your context, your five scenes. Now let's look at the three epics of salvation. What is exactly being prophesied and when will we see these things come to pass? We've hit on this a few times in Isaiah, how we understand prophecy and its fulfillment, its reference. I won't go over it all with you again, except to say there's multiple reference. Martin Luther made this comment, says, although we read scriptures forward, we only understand it backward. That's often the case as you you work through the redemptive story, then what comes to light later on sheds light on, okay, makes sense of what I had seen earlier. We understand it backward. And from our perspective, as we look at the prophecy of Isaiah, we see a past, a present, and a future fulfillment and reality to it. So the first epic in which it would have been fulfilled, an immediate fulfillment in the life and the history of Israel as it speaks of them making their pilgrimage to Mount Zion, we know that multiple times each year, the people of God would make their pilgrimage for certain feasts and festivities to worship their God. We also see it in the promises through Isaiah that God will be faithful to a remnant. And even though they go into exile, he will bring back the faithful. He will bring them back home. And so there is an immediate sort of historical fulfillment that we can look back upon. But surely we can tell there's much greater fulfillment to this prophecy than just that. And so we know that it is fulfilled in Christ, in the gospel. Indeed, all of their promises have their yes in Christ Jesus. We've seen this in Mark. In fact, it wasn't that long ago in Mark that that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 35, as Christ comes and he brings the message, the gospel of the kingdom, he presents the kingdom, that it's at hand because he is there. And part of that reality is the healing that he brings as he gives blind people sight. He gives the deaf hearing, the mute are able to talk. He, he gives the lame ability to walk. And in it, he is demonstrating the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here. This is what the kingdom looks like and his power and authority and healing that it brings. And it's also a declaration that indeed he is the divine son of God. He is the Messiah. Because in Isaiah 35, it says when God comes, this is going to happen. And Jesus is saying it's happening now. God has come. So we see the fulfillment in Christ in the gospel. And then there's a future fulfillment. An eschatological one. When all of this will finally and fully be fulfilled as it ends there. When sorrow and sighing will flee away. A verse quoted or referred to multiple times in Revelation where God will wipe all tears from eyes and no more crying and no more pain. The old will pass away. 
all will become new. So there is a past reality to it that we can witness in the history of Israel. There is a present reality to it that we right now experience and enjoy. That the gospel promises in Isaiah 35, these scenes of his salvation describe the work that God has done and is doing in our lives. That spiritually, indeed, we were blind and he has given us sight. We were weak and feeble and unable in any way to help ourselves. And he came and intervened and worked on our behalf. And we await its future fulfillment. All right. We've already done three of the four things. We've worked through, well, more quickly than I thought we would, really. That never happens. Okay, the singular theme then. A singular theme that I want to draw out that we see really in Scripture. (coughs) We see during Christmas for sure. And it's this, that God in Christ Jesus is bringing us home from exile. He is bringing us home from exile. The idea of home and exile. We've established there is no possibility of self-salvation. So God is going to come himself and to enter into our exile to bring salvation, to bring us home. Look where we start in verse 35. So so he begins with this description that one day the the glory of the Lord is going to shine bright as he renews his creation. In the examples he gives, it's the the soil will be be very fertile, will be lush, The, the landscape will be absolutely beautiful. The crop will be uh, will grow orderly and and unimposed. The fruit will be abundant, will be satisfying. This is the picture that he paints. But currently, it comes out of what? It comes out of the wilderness, out of barrenness. The wilderness is always a theme that keeps coming up. You see it all through the Old Testament. You see it with Christ himself. You you see it continuing through the wilderness, this idea of our pilgrimage, of, of testing, of our journey, that indeed we are exiles. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. And it's given to us in this picture of, of a wilderness journey. Indeed, it's one of the great themes of the Bible, right? You, you think of the children of Israel. Take in that they're, they're in Egypt and they find themselves as they grow in the slavery in Egypt. Exiles in Egypt. And the Lord is going to deliver them from that exile. And then they hit the wilderness and there's years and years of pilgrimage and wandering. Trying to make it home from the exile. They're taken by Babylon, right, into captivity. Again, exiled away from their home. And a remnant, God is faithful to his promises and to his word, and he delivers a remnant back. But then you have, by the time we get to the New Testament, Roman occupation. And so they may be in their homeland, but, but they are slaves. There's no freedom there. They're still exiles, even in their homeland. 
And Israel serves as just sort of a picture to us of all of the human race. Because you go back to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were created, and they were planted in the garden, placed in the garden. And they were a perfect fit for the garden, and the garden was a perfect fit for them. And in it, they flourished. They flourished in imaging their God and their their creativity and their cultivating. They had dominion, and, and in their dominion, there was gratitude and there was stewardship. They enjoyed the beauty. They enjoyed the fellowship of one another. They enjoyed fellowship with God. It was home. Eden was home. It was perfectly made and suited and fit for them. And then sin, disobedience, and they find themselves outside of the garden. And there's the angel with the flaming sword who stands there, the east of the garden, guarding it that that they would not return into it. And they find themselves exiled from the garden, exiled from that same sort of presence of the Lord that they enjoyed in the garden. And there's frustration and there's difficulty and they now live in a world in which they are not properly suited for. It's not fit for them. They were not created to to thrive in a cursed, fallen world. And hardship immediately arises. And that continues to be the story. It's the story of the Old Testament. How will God bring his people home? The story of the New Testament and the two advents of Christ, of of Christ coming and entering into our exile to bring us home and then awaiting the fulfillment when he comes again. In fact, that's how the climax of the story is given to us in Revelation, isn't it? That he will create, bring down, as it were, a new Eden, a recreated Eden, new heavens and the earth coming down from heaven. And we, our image will be restored and we will be at home perfectly as we were made to be. So home is that idea. It's, it's what suits you. It's, it's where you find peace. It's where, where you belong, what you're perfectly fit for. We have some idea of that even in our own earthly homes. Right? You're, there's just a, a comfort level. It just suits you. It's where you flourish. It's where you're fit to be. <clears throat> I've never been like a real homebody. I know some, you know, some split either way. Some, you know, they finish high school, they leave, they don't ever want to come home again. Others who just, you know, they're showing up at their old high school gym, 38, still trying to, you know, live the good old days. They just are homebodies that can't move on. But I do remember <clears throat> my freshman year of college specifically. I left early for college for some extracurricular things and where I went was a long way away so I didn't make trips home and ended up not coming home for Thanksgiving I had to stay after finals for some things so finally at Christmas break I remember going home taking a flight and just how good it felt to like get back in my bedroom my bed no roommates no laundromat. My mom washed my clothes for me. Made some food that was delicious. 
I knew where everything was. It's, there, there, I can still think of that and, and even f- get that feeling back of just that three to four weeks of that being home. And, you know, it was really the last time I, like, went home like that and spent a bunch of time. But there's, it just fits. There's something about going back there. And so that gives you the little context as we understand a little foreshadowing of home from our exile. But, but because of the curse, because of sin, we have lost that home. This world is not our home because of the fall. You think we weren't made to be at home in a place where there is war, where there is disease, where there is evil, where there is darkness, where there is death. We weren't made for that. And yet because of the curse, it's all around us. And that's why when we read the Christmas story, especially from Isaiah, it's in such a cosmic way that it tells it. Of God bringing peace, of the government being upon his shoulders, of all justice and inequity and unrighteousness and everything being ended and his justice and his righteousness and his equity reigning. Because that's necessary if God's going to bring us home out of exile. How is this going to happen? The, the, the passage continues to tell us. How will God bring us home out of exile? Well, verse 4 tells us, he will come and save you. Christmas. Here's where we get to Christmas. God has come. He's come to meet our deepest need and to bring us home in exile. And he does it by becoming an exile for us. Home in exile is a big part of the Christmas story. I mean, first, Christ left his home in heaven. I know home differently than how we think about it, but he left his perfect fellowship with the Father. He cloaked himself in frailty in humanity. And he entered this world as a servant. Then even as his birth, Mary and Joseph are away from their own home. They're traveling in a different town. They get to this town and there's not an inn room. There's not a, a home that's open for them. They've got to find a barn to go into. We, we sometimes think of the barn as like they just slept there and then Jesus laid in the manger. And we, you know, there, There's really two pictures for us to have of the stall, the barn. There is a place for that silent night, beautiful picture of peace and joy because of the reality both historical reality and redemptive reality of what was happening. But there's also a piece of it where you just need to understand the difficulty and hardness of it all. That Mary, a young teenage girl, went into a dirty barn, hay spread around probably with animal urine and manure in it and, and, and who knows what else, and gave birth to a child in that barn. Laid it in a dirty, slobbery feeding trough. There is an, a harshness to that. There is a, it's funny, Tim Keller, I heard him um, 
the way he does, driving home the point, talking about Christmas. He did a Christmas devotional oh, a few years back. And he talks about, especially in New York City, how so many people talk about the Christmas story being inspiring. They don't believe it historically or redemptively, but it's just an inspiring story that brings joy and peace. And he asked the question, how in the world is that story inspiring if it's not real? He's like, what does it inspire you to do? Have your kids outdoors? <laughs> Driving home the point of just the, the inspiring part, the silent night, the joy, the peace, is because it really happened and it has huge redemptive and historical significance for us. But the event itself is a, a picture of the extreme inhospitable nature of this world to our true home. It's a symbol of the hardness of the world, a hardness to God. It is the reason that Christ had to come into the world to say that he had to enter as an exile because the darkness is inhospitable to God and to his grace. And it's inhospitable to us as believers, as exiles, pilgriming in this wilderness. So Jesus came in that way. And then it's not long before they're, they're fleeing from their homeland again in order to avoid the death edict from the king. Jesus in his life and his ministry says in Matthew 8 verse 20, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He is in exile. He gave up a heavenly home and went into exile for us. The birth, the life, and all the way to the end of his life. It's significant that he's taken and he's brought outside of the city. Again, exiled from Jerusalem to be crucified. And as he hangs there on the cross, he experiences the curse. He became a curse for us. We've hit this before, but part of being a curse is forsakenness. And in his humanity, he experienced the forsakenness of God. Exiled, as it were, from the benediction and the presence of God in his humanity. As he would yell out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's taking the penalty for sin. He's becoming a curse, that expulsion from the presence of God to be driven outside. He came into the darkness to bring us light. He came into exile to bring us home. And that's our reality. That right now we have a foretaste, we have a foreshadowing of home. Right now we have true joy. Uh, our eyes have been opened. Our tongues have been loosened to sing his praises. His light has made clear the highway, the path. He's given us the spirit to direct us in it. And surely he who began the good work will complete it in us. It is our reality because of Christmas, because of the first advent, because of Jesus entering exile, that we have been given a home 
And even as exiled pilgrims right now, we have a taste and a foreshadow of it and a promise of its future reality. And yet there's still a sense in which we await for God to come, right? He has come and we await his coming. Even now, God, God is present with us. Christ walks in our midst. He's given us the spirit. And yet, when we think of it in, in a cosmic sense, he is invisible and he's resistible. Now, when I say resistible, I don't mean that his plans can be thwarted or his purposes won't be pre- prevail. I'll say he's resistible and that he can be ignored. He can be disobeyed. We can still engage in what in darkness and in evil. There will come a time when he appears again and he will be irresistible and every knee will bend and every head will bow and everyone will confess that he is king of kings and lord of lords. God himself will be our home. Psalm 90 tells us that the Lord is our dwelling place. We we were created to love and to enjoy him. We were created to be in his presence. We were created for that to be our fit, our our home. The problem is that, that often in this age we get distracted and we find, okay, I want to find my my comfort, my fit, my joy in something different. Maybe it'll be a relationship. Maybe it'll be a job. Maybe it'll be some finances. Whatever it is. But that always fails because it can't bear up under the, the weight of an exile trying to find home. Finish with verses 8 through 10. Says a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, <laughs> they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Again, it's saying from start to beginning, this is a work of God. He will make the highway, he will pave it, he will make it clear, and he will set us on it. And even if we are fools, even if we act foolishly, he will guard us and he will care for us. He will guide us along that path. And when the lions and the robbers and everyone rises up against us, he will protect us. And because of his first appearance, the main obstacle on the highway, he's already removed our sin and our guilt. And he is making the path clear. So when you get to verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Because of Christmas, There's a foretaste, there's a foreshadow of this life, life outside of exile and in our true home. We can know a measure of being home, even in the midst of exile, because of that. Because the light has come and it's stronger than darkness. 
Hope has come and it is victorious. Salvation has come. We are set free. And yet with joyful, longing, sometimes lamenting, but hopeful hearts, we can believe in God's promises in the future aspect of this promise that he entered exile in order to bring us home forever. What we were perfectly fit for. No more war, no more disease, no more sorrow, no more tears. But where God himself is our dwelling place. Let's pray.